0: Episode is this, producer Dan? Uh, we've made it up to number eight, believe it or not. Man, eight times people listen to us talk. Again, brought to you by Dollar General Store in Robinson, where you can get toilet paper for less than one dollar. And today, Travis, here's my thought. Um, if I had 10 players come into me with mechanical flaws, and they were either pushy and steep or they were losing the barrel or dumping the barrel behind them. If I had nine of those of one flaw or the other, which would you choose? I would choose pushy and steep. Agreed. And my thought was if we had nine players that were pushy and steep, we would get them to learn to turn under the ball quicker than we would fix the one that is dumping the barrel. Yes. We monopolize all of our time with the one that's dumping the barrel. Now, dumping the barrel, for some reason, could become a, a certain cult of the hitting faction actually teaches barrel dumping. But why is it, in your opinion, it's so hard to get guys that lose the barrel and get under plane of a pitch? Why is it so hard to fix those guys?
1: Um, I think a lot of times barrel dumping can either be taught like, like you kind of were alluding to right there. Um, I think a lot of times barrel dump is either a strength issue. Um, or like we've talked about before, like, you know, the, the faster I turn, the more likely it is I'm going to barrel dump. So the faster I go, the harder it is to keep the hands from falling behind the body, which which is what's going to give you the barrel dump. So I think, you know, now with this showcase era, again, we're going back to the same kind of thought, like guys are trying to go so fast that they're just trying to run around the corner so fast with their body that the hands just physically can't keep up and go with them, so the barrel dumps. Now, I think also, you know, obviously we went through the fad forever of, you know, get the ball get the ball in the air. And, you know, for most people to think get the ball in the air, they figure they have to get the barrel under the ball, not realizing that they just need to be able to get the ball out in front of them. So you get a lot of guys, I think, that just throw the barrel under the ball trying to create lift, when in reality – Yeah,
0: that's
1: good. When when in reality, I always – when I'm trying to explain, you know, launch angle, as it were, I said your objective for most kids on a daily basis because they don't have the bat speed to do the damage that they need to do anyways yet is to simply make sure that they can get the ball over the infield. So my, my launch angle is like anything that gets the ball over the first line of defense is a good position to hit the ball because that eliminates more than half the defenders on the field to simply just get the ball over the first line of defense. Now, if you've got a little bit more zip, maybe you can carry it over the second line of defense. Now you can take a shot at having a little bit of a higher launch because you can carry the ball farther. But if you can't, you're guaranteeing yourself a very high – Rate of success by simply getting the ball over the initial line of defense.
0: I got something for you. What you got? So first, interesting statistic. I'm not going to be exactly right on this number, but I'm going to be within five points. I think I've used this in a presentation. Big league level stats from two years ago. A hundred mile an hour hit at a ten degree launch angle. What do you think the batting average is? Ten degree launch hour, angle. Ten degrees. Probably nine, probably nine ninety eight it's close yeah it's like 978 like 975 like you are guaranteed to get a hit and I'm guessing those ones that are outs would be into a shift where the second baseman's playing in shallow right field it has to be because there's no other way it's like going over the infield and in front of the outfield right yeah Uh, but my thought on your your launch angle there in order to get the ball in the air people are artificially dumping to do it right But isn't then getting the ball in the air less of a swing trait and more of be on time? If you are on time, you're likely to get the ball in the air unless you continue in a negative attack angle, which rarely but does sometimes still happen where guys are just continuing to swing all the way down through the zone and that ball gets gets on the ground. But isn't getting the ball in the air more timing-related?
1: Yeah, 100 100. I mean, if you just think about what a natural arc of the bat of the bat around the body would look like, if I'm catching the ball deeper, I would have to dump the barrel to be able to get any sort of upward movement in the barrel sooner, rather than just the arc moving out front naturally rising as you catch the ball in front. That reminds me too of that um, video that was going around the internet for a while of uh, Dante Bichette and. He was talking about essentially the same topic and he's talking about launch angle and he was saying you know you got to know when to take your chances because to also catch the ball farther in front you have to begin a little bit sooner to get there so you're also making a decision a little bit sooner to be able to get out there and to do that you're also taking a little bit more of a risk that you might misread some pitches or you might miss hit some balls because you're committing sooner but as a hitter you have to learn when to and not to take those chances like when when is it that I'm going up in the case? Actually, this is what the, my conversation in our, in our foreign ones in the cage were this week for the hitting groups. It was, we had two different cages going. We had a slower arced cage and then we had a firmer, a firmer cage. And I said, you guys need to understand like having an approach in these cages right now, if you're going out and facing Max Scherzer, if you're going out and facing some dude throwing 95. Like that is not the moment in your life that you should be taking a chance to like try to lose a baseball like in that at bat you're going to try to win an at bat probably by leveling the ball off because you're going to make a decision hopefully a little bit later it's going to take you maybe what it feels like you know more time to get to the ball and then when you get in that lob cage you got a guy throwing 66 miles an hour like that's when you take your chances because it's easier to make some mistakes and be able to catch the ball in front and get some lift on a guy that's throwing slower now that doesn't mean you're always taking a chance on that guy but if I'm in a game and I'm going to take a chance on being able to launch a baseball, it's going to be on a guy that throws a little bit slower because I know that my decision-making process has more time and I have more time.
0: Yeah. reminds. There's a, a short time that I was a high school coach at Hazelwood central in, in St. Louis. And in our conference, our rival is Hazelwood West who ended up having three guys in their starting rotation at all were in the big leagues, two Phelps brothers and Kyle McClellan. And when we'd face them, of course, I was younger then, so when I, I would throw BP prior to the game. I'm like, we are going to see plus velocity for the high school level today. It's going to be 91, 92, which at the high school level, that's like that's that's cheese. And we weren't a great hitting team. We were based on pitching in, in defense, and I actually spent very little time coaching hitting because in a high school setting, you had like two weeks before you started playing. Like, what am I actually going to do in two weeks of changing mechanics? Like, This is your swing. This is how you're going to succeed with it. But I would throw BP basically as hard as I could and say, guys, today is a middle away day. That's the only thing you're looking for. And we're trying to see how many line drives as a righty that we can hit over the second baseman's head. Because that's all you're going to get. You're not going to be able to pull the ball on this guy. His velocity is too good. So we were taking kind of the law of effective velocity saying, if I can look out over the plate, I'm going to lose three miles per hour on that pitch, and now it's hittable, meaning the perception of that pitch that was 91 is now 88. So it was just like a complete different approach in what we do on the, the plus high school thrower that was throwing 75, and we could, you know, hit double after doubles. Like, let's see how many singles we can hit today over the second baseman's head, because this guy's throwing cheese.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's probably a mistake that I made as a hitter, is no matter who you threw up there, I was like, I'm going to take my shot. And every once in a while it would work out, but more than not, it wouldn't, you know, and it was, it wasn't because of physicality it was just poor, poor, a poor approach. It was poor management of the situation, you know, whether, whether at that time in life, it was still like an egotistical thing or whatever it was, it was just like, Hey, I'm going to get this guy. Like, Hey, you know, and you know, you look back and, you know, some of the decisions you make are what leads you down a different path. I mean, there's, there's a reason why I had to become a pitcher, you know, poor, poor approach decisions, poor you know, ego decisions of like, oh, this guy throws hard. I'll show you, who, I'll show you, what, you how, what you do to a guy that throws hard. And you take those chances because you had to catch the ball in front of that guy. And the problem is he threw hard enough. You were swinging at pitches that were terrible pitch decisions because you had to commit early to go get it out front. And the Next thing you know, you're on the bench going like, well, hopefully I get another shot at him, you know.
0: My next thought is we're going back to if we have nine guys that are either steep, pushy, or losing the barrel behind, and we, and we both agreed that we'd rather have the steep and pushy guy. Do, in your opinion, is that where so much of the teaching that we recognize over the last 15 years, 20 years, was way more of use your hands, get your hands to the ball? Was that? Do you think that was going from baseline, lower level, grassroots up so kids could handle the bat, or do you think that was being taught from the big leagues? filtering down because those guys likely are in sequence and they are thinking more of their hands as the last piece of that.
1: Well, I think a lot of it's changed now, obviously. Like if you look at like when, when we were coming up, there wasn't social media, people weren't posting their thoughts. You couldn't watch a video on Chipper Jones or Mike Trout or some of these guys that have come out and said, you know, I feel like I'm down to the ball because you you didn't have access to that. So I would assume like when we were growing up, if people were talking about hands, it almost had to be from, from that point, it had to be somewhere from the bottom. Now I would say that a lot of that thought is now coming from the top down because we have access. And those guys, a lot of them that you, that they, that put their thoughts out on social media or in video form somewhere, um, they think about being down or steeper to the ball or, Maybe, maybe the thought of, you know, more, more pushy into the swing. And I think, you know, when you get a younger kid as a, as a coach, even if you don't know a lot about the swing, you notice the difference between the hands going this way and the hands going that way. Yeah. So I think, you know, even as a, just a, a normal person that's watched the game, you're like, well, that's not, what, that's not what those guys that I'm seeing on TV, that's not what they look like they're doing. And I think, you know, the next thought would be like, hey, let's keep the hands closer to the body. Let's even have less of a load. And let's just kind of get going to the ball. Um, So I think, you know, I think it works probably both ways. I think now it's probably more driven from the top simply because they talk about stuff like that. And everybody, everybody has access to it. You know, it's like the Like I said, it's like the, the Bichette video I talked about earlier, you know, that thing, I don't even know how many times that thing was viewed. I probably watched it Four or five times myself, just because I like the way that he articulated the thought. Oh, so I, you know, I'll use him as a reference. Hey, man, Travis,
0: that was an old school thought. You're I just know. A new right? school guy.
1: No, but it was an old school thought with a new school feel. It, so he was,
0: I he, was, was, he was... I was just joking. It. No, no, but, but, it, is, but it is. the whole old school, new school argument is... But it is. It's it's, but
1: the best part of it is, if you hear him talk, like, you, you can tell that he understands... You can tell he understands kind of what's happening now in the culture of learning, like how we are learning the game a little bit different than it was learned then. That doesn't mean that the game is different. We're just learning it slightly different. that's, That's well put. He did a good job of blending those two things together where people that are coming up now go, oh, that makes sense to me. And people that have played the game a long time ago listen to it and go, oh, that makes sense to me. And I think that's why the way he did it was so valuable because it fed both.
0: Yeah, that, that's well said. I, I think if I had a hundred professional players, this is good for people on the amateur side that are listening to this, hundred professional players, and you said, what is your swing thought? 98 are, are going to come back of those 100 and say, I think I have to swing down. And they, I have a, a big league guy that I'll be working with after this podcast this morning in the cage, and he literally thinks he is hammering down on the pitch, like literally swinging straight friggin' down and he doesn't do that but that's what he has to think to tighten up his 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 swingers essentially be short to the ball because if he loses it at all behind him the rest of the swing is a compensating move and there are guys that could probably get the barrel a little bit deeper with incredible turn speed or and good breaks at the end and get to those pitches, but the majority, the vast majority of hitters, even at the big league level, can't do that. Man, uh, the timing is—it's such a premium. It's never been harder. The velocity in the game has never been harder. The velocity at the minor league level has never been harder. I mean, we I, we were at instructs this year. Cool, same thing. And, um, I mean, we were playing. I was I was joking with the GM of the Giants, and I said. You have more guys in instructs. These are like a ball at the top, maybe double a guys throwing 98 to hundred than you do on your big league team. And he kind of laughs. And like, there's this, there's so many of those guys out there, like just young Latin American kids, six, eight, just throwing the tar out of the ball, like 98 to hundred. I'm like, Oh my God, uh, strap it on boys. Time to compete. You know?
1: Yeah. And it's not even just the speed. Cause again, think about, think about what that does to the decision-making window. The quicker that ball is getting on me, the less time that I have again to make decisions. So it's not even just like, hey, this ball is coming fast. Like, you got to be ready to move. It's, you know, do I have to cheat a little bit? Is my swing built? Is my swing built to get to this ball on time without me feeling like I need to cheat a little bit? You know, so I think, you know, there's so much that goes into that. And that's why velocity is still going to be at a premium. And it's going to be hard for velocity not to be a premium. And that doesn't mean that there's not, quality guys that can really pitch that throw with less velocity. But if you give me a guy that's got really good pitch ability, you know, you take a guy like Kyle Hendricks, you know, simply because obviously being a Chicago guy, you know, a guy that doesn't throw with high velocity, but is very effective because he locates well, he mixes his pitches up well, he tunnels those pitches pretty well. Now, if you give me that same guy like him and he throws 97 and he has the same control and he has the same secondary pitches, well, who are you going to take? I'm going to take the guy that gives guys less time to react, um, not just taking the guy who pitches well. I'm going to take the guy that does both, and it's going to keep going that way because guys are finding out. I mean, there's guys now that throw – again, there's guys that throw 95-plus that can't even find a home.
0: Yeah. Those guys that are – the safest bet in the history of scouting, right, the radar gun. And yeah. when we were in high school, like if a guy threw – or even probably college, really. If a guy threw 90, like 90 was the magic number. That's going to get you drafted. Now, even from the right side, you're you're seeing guys that throw 93 to 95 that can't find a job in pro ball, which is just mind-boggling to me. Now, I got, I got a next question for you. We're going to shift gears here. Right. We talked last week, because you mentioned Hendricks and made me think of this, from the pitching side, that guys that can have command – have just exceptional proprioception. They know where body parts are in space. And we talked about being able to do a, a running gun and still locating the pitch, stepping sideways off the mound, throwing sidearm and still be able to locate the pitch. On the hitting side, I would describe that same feel, not just with barrel awareness, but I'm gonna take it a step further in decision-making. And decision-making to me is one, if not the hardest thing to teach Um, I would compare it up there as difficult as timing because they're both, in my opinion, really innate things. Talking to prevalent big league hitters, um, you know, Kevin Euclid, I've had this conversation with him. And, uh, you know, we've worked with Mike Talkman with the Yankees for several years now, and he's a really good decision maker. And I had this conversation with both of them. And I said you're really good at this. You have the the ability to lay off tough pitches. You have the ability to to recognize pitches early. And I said, were you always good at this? And Mike and Kevin both said, yeah. And like going back, I don't, Kevin talked about it in college. Mike said, even we was like, I think it was little league, I don't know if he played little league or travel ball or what it was. He was like, I've always been able to do this. Is it an innate quality or is that something players can get better at, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, if you think about it, like, at at a younger age, it's what do you put the value on that we're teaching the youth, right? So, you know, are we teaching them to just be better athletes? Are we starting decision-making, you know, work early? Like, how how often, when we first started coaching, how often did we do decision-making work? You know, like, now, you know, once a hitter gets relatively close to you know moving well for themselves or mechanics or however you want to word that we primarily go away from any sort of you know mechanical work It'd be like hey you're moving well enough that you should be able to hit well without feeling like you need to try to be perfect let's just start making good decisions and let's like let's, let's start finding a way and when I say make good decisions it's not just like what pitches in my mind it's not just what pitches to swing at but the positions you're going to put yourself in to hit those pitches. So decision-making is is that quick movement of how am I going to get this done to that pitch? So I can make a decision and say, Hey, I made a decision that ball is close enough for me to go get, but can I make a decision as to what the position my body needs to be in to make that decision? So I've been, I've been on loop on this. This is kind of where my thought on that decision-making thing is. And I, I, I do this part of the decision making and I'll tell you about the other, the, how I set up the other part of the decision making stuff now. Um, but I've been on loop with this this Mike Trout video um, where it looks like he misread a breaking pitch and he ends up basically tilting over to probably 40, 40 degrees tilted over the plate. So basically almost completely
0: sideways. Yeah, so th- this would be like a ball that's going to be mid shin right
1: yeah low low and low and away but you could you could tell that early he misread the pitch because his posture had to drop considerably to get to the ball and when you look at it i look at the video i'm like man like for how far his head is almost over the plate for how far his upper body weight is leaning forward he had complete balance in his lead foot and then you look at it and say okay well the whole kickback thing like his foot might have kicked back two and a half feet. So, for him to lean over farther, and for him, I'm assuming just the spur of the moment to keep balance, he had to have something go obviously opposite direction to stabilize on the front foot to have balance there so the upper body could feel like it could do what he needed it to do. So, in my mind, like there's no I could be wrong, I can't imagine that Mike Trout grew up working on that move on just like hey. When a ball's here, I'm going to practice a 1,000 reps of (laughs) having this kick kick back so I could bounce on this foot, tilt this way, and still hit this ball well. So, you know, I think Mike Trout was probably born with, you know, something like that a little bit where he just – not born with it, but just like immediately his brain would work that way where he was just like what he valued in what he was doing was somewhat probably of balance. Like I have to have balance to feel like I can do what I need to do. And without maybe training it every day – the value of what he was doing might have been balance. And that gives him adjustability, which is to me still decision-making because somebody else would attack that pitch and they just reach with their arms or fall over as they're trying to hit it. And that's still a decision. You decided to attack it that way. Um, And I'll let you kind of talk about that a little bit if you've got something to say. Yeah, I
0: I do. I think, um, one, do you think anybody ever taught Mike Trout or told him what his back leg did in that swing?
1: No chance. no chance. Well, I, mean, I can't say no chance. I don't know. I would say. Yeah, no. we,
0: uh, true. yeah. Well, I, to me, that is the innate ability of a super athlete to find body positions, really probably self organizing. And I, the best in the game can do that, man. They can make what you're calling a decision, uh, but they can solve complex problems in a lot shorter amount of time than what the normal human being can do. And by solving complex problems, you, that was it. It might be he valued balance and his body figured out how to get into that position. Um, I think if we leave hitter, and you know, I've talked about this a lot. And, and I say, again, I don't mean to try to shut down my own business, but if we let hitters be athletes and you, you, you that word is key because it's not just playing baseball. It's not just hitting. If we've let hitters be athletes and we don't coach them for their first 12 years of life, the best athletes are going to be able to figure out how to solve those complex problems. You just have to put them in a lot of different scenarios in order to do it. So I, I get that can't just be throwing baseballs at them. Like you have to solve the, 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 what makes the dynamic athlete is putting their bodies in a bunch of foreign positions that allow them to, have the, the brainwave figure out what I need to do in this scenario, which is why to me in, in football is questionable with the helmet situation. I, I played through college football. I don't know if I had a son. I don't, I would let them play football today with, without solving the helmet issue. But to me, football, and I would say soccer, the things that you just have to change and make decisions innately without just subconsciously are so great for athleticism um because of the unpredictability of it would we kind of went long story long there would we be better off in the right environment because again there has to be a lot of, of different stimuli to the hitter would we be better off letting these guys just figure it out these kids
1: uh I mean I think some I think like you said like to get to your point the key word being athlete so I think part of it is in the first place like you have to get people functionally strong for their body weight. So obviously a younger kid doesn't need to be as strong because they don't have as much body weight. So it takes less to control what they have. Like we have to help kids become stable. We have to help them. Which is really hard. You, you,
0: you throw that yeah. out there as like, you well, know, this, you know, this is a small thing. But that, that's huge because you're right. I would say the majority of the hitters and pitchers that we come in that are really, really young, the thing that makes mechanics super hard for them is they lack body control. Now, I wouldn't even say awareness, just body control because they aren't strong enough yet to have body control, dynamic balance, moving from one leg to another and still control their body while they do it. And that's hard, man, that, that's it's hard. hard.
1: And, that, and you you immediately know, you immediately know though, like there's, there's some of those kids, they come in and you're just like, you're, you're special. And like we said, like, then you, like usually I, like, I, my next question, like we had in the conversation a few weeks back is, did you wrestle or did you do gymnastics? Because, you know, wrestling, again, is like what you'd say is like football or soccer or anything else where you have to make decisions quick. In wrestling, it's you have to learn how to control your body weight versus somebody else's body weight versus what they're trying to set up versus what you're trying to set up. And it's constantly changing. There's never there's never a moment where it really stays the same. There's always a shift of body weight and you have to reshift or you have to offset or plan for your exit strategy to, to break free or anything else like that. Like so you get you get kids that probably put themselves in some sports or in some ways of training without them thinking about it, even if it's like karate, you know, just for stability, balance, stuff like that. And you look at those kids then as they're at a younger age, having success in other sports simply because at that point they're more athletic. They have better control because they are more stable because they understand how to manipulate their body weight or to make decisions a little bit quicker because they have to in other in other areas um, but do i think you can still i do i think there's ability to help push that or teach that yeah i think there is and i think it's kind of again it goes back to like what do we value do we value do we value output in a game at a young age you know like do, are we saying listen man i want you to throw 70% strikes as a 10 year old cuz to throw 70% strikes you're not probably going to figure out how to athletically do something at a high level it's going to be you gave me the task of throwing this ball over the plate I'm just going to straight line push it because I know I have a better chance of it going straight if I'm going this way than if I'm having to rotate and control a rotation which makes it harder to control it because I have to be stronger I have to be more stable when I'm rotating to control than just throwing a dart so I think a lot of it is the task that you're giving the kid if you gave the kid hey here's the task Let's see who can let's see who can throw from four different arm angles and still hit that box over there. Because now you're giving them you're giving again multiple harder tasks. Like how many young kids work on throwing like that slightly submarine throw to first base as an infielder? You know, but you get kids that you put them in a position that's foreign to them that is also more difficult to manage. Like leaning over is obviously more difficult to manage than standing upright. And you say, Let's see if you can solve this task. And you sit there and like, even if even if it's hey, we're gonna do you know, 10 throws like this every single time that we're in practice. And the first two, three weeks might be, might be terrible. Like you might, you might not throw a ball anywhere near where it needs to go. You might feel like you're going to fall over when you're throwing it, but it's what you task and what you choose to task and make important to the kid. So if the kid thinks it's important, like your only task, like growing up, growing up, the task was, and still is now. I hear this still this day and it just irritates me. The task in hitting has always been don't strike out. When you're young, the worst thing on the in the world to do when you're a young kid is to strike out. I used to cry every time I struck out. Well, we all did because we knew we were in trouble. <laughs> like it was like you know that like I
0: hated to strike out.
1: Well, but you knew not only that, you knew like your coaches were going to be upset, you knew that your parents were going to be like, "Come on, man." But the thing was, it was ne- the task was never, "Hey, you need to learn to control your body better. Hey, you need to learn how to how to rotate" quicker hey you need to learn how to do this it was the task was simply like don't strike out and and it like why not, why not just go up and bunt then i'll never strike out like i'm not going to be a great athlete because i'm not training myself to be a great athlete i'm just training myself to not fail at the task you're telling me is appropriate for me and that goes back to what you had said a couple episodes back again when you're talking about you know they don't play they don't have practices or structure games that much you know in in the um caribbean you know mm-hmm. where it's at a young age it's like hey you're just you're out and moving you're there's no like oh well this you know you're not being able to perform this well in the game here it's like let's just learn how to move let's well, learn they're
0: basically training for a showcase to get signed right.
1: yeah
0: but there's then you're not worrying about training, training. For output. Yeah. yeah
1: you're not training to worry about being bad in the game So I got, I want to
0: go back to the decision-making in just a second. I think about your, when we grew up, like the worst thing in the world was a strikeout. And I'll touch on that. Like the industry is going back towards, we're not going to be as acceptable to 150 strikeouts a year. So we're looking for people that can control the zone. But I think my senior year of high school, um, we're into like this, the 16 teams left in the state and a newspaper article came out and my coach was hitting on it and, the biggest newspaper we probably had in the area was either Terre Haute or Evansville. And it came out that I, ha- I didn't strike out the entire season. But now I ended up striking out twice in this game, both looking, both on terrible calls. And I drew a line in the dirt, which was probably a bad uh, idea to show up the umpire. And I about got thrown out after that first strikeout. And then he rang me up on the second one, but that's a sidebar. But I was swinging the entire season not to strike out. And I got about halfway through the season and I recognized I hadn't struck you out yet. I'm like, I'm not going to strike out this entire season. Now, I hit for a really high average, but I'm, I, was sick, I was skinny then, but I was still 6'2", fairly strong, athletic. And all I did was hit singles. At my size, I should have been, like, if you don't strike out the entire season, you're not aggressive enough. You, you're a very passive hitter, in my opinion. And I, I did myself an injustice of being very careful at the plate to not strike out versus being a more productive hitter. And I sh- should have struck out a dozen times, you know?
1: Right. And, and, and even like kind of how you said, like, I'm not advocating that people go and try to strike out or that strikeouts are okay. That wasn't the point. The point was kind of what you just made is that, you know, I was probably the complete opposite mindset as you. It was like, if I strike out, I don't care. Like, I'm going to catch some barrels and these balls are going to go. And because of that, like my batting average is probably lower than yours. And, you know, I did strike out maybe 40% of the time, you know, but my job within my team also wasn't to be the guy that just got on base every time my job was to knock in runs and to knock in runs. There wasn't always guys on second base, whereas like I can knock in a run here by just lacing a single somewhere It was a lot of times nobody on base because that's the way high school baseball was. It was unless the other team was walking guys or there was, you know, a guy on first and second. And I'm like, I'm going to knock them both in, you know, I'm going to hit something hard enough that both of them have an opportunity to score. It wasn't like, Hey, let me knock one in and pass the baton to the next guy. Now, again, like in, on, in my squad, it might've been too that the guy behind me was struggling a little bit. And it was like, well, if I pass the baton, he hasn't been doing what he should do. I feel like I give us the best opportunity to get two runs here. I would let it go. So I had the opposite. And honestly, like I if I could go back, I would say I, I would tailor my approach to be more of a you know situational guy where no one would take my shot. Like just have some at bats where I'm going up, you know, maybe not trying to strike out or not or caring more if I did and just cutting my swing down and putting a little better barrel on the ball and not take a chance as often. But
0: so it sounds you know, like we're saying. The best live solution lies in the middle somewhere. Yeah. There's
1: al- there's always that gray area, right? You gotta yeah. find the middle. There's a compromise to everything.
0: So you were you were touching on decision making as we went into that story about trout and started talking about body control. So yep. what, what are your, your second thoughts about decision making you're gonna bring up? So
1: decision making like decision making what I do in a cage, because I I I know that decision making is important and I know that decision making probably again comes easier for some people than it does others. Um but if you can help, you can help and you can help people make better decisions by forcing them task-wise to make better decisions. So they're going to live and learn. They're going to make some failures along the way. So when we get to the decision-making portion of what I do, we do I do multiple different ways of decision-making. So let's say I'm going to start out and we're going to, I'm going to tell or ask the athlete, you know, pick a zone, where do you want the ball? You know, and usually in that, in that situation, it's going to be one of four zones. It's going to be either up, down, in, or out. So I'm like, you know, you're going to make a decision. If you choose out, if you choose out, I'm going to throw balls either in like inner part of the plate or outer part of the plate, you're only going to swing at what your decision making area is. And we're going to keep a running statistic. Like it's, it's going to be your batting average, you know? So your batting average isn't like, are you barreling these balls right now? It's, are you making the right decision as to what you are now telling me that you want?
0: I like that. You're holding them accountable, putting a score, making it competitive. Yeah. Yeah, because well, that way
1: you're also saying like you're 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 going to have to – you can't just be like, oh, well, oh, man, I made a mistake on them. Well, you got to do better because your score is going to keep adding up. Like that one mistake, with three more mistakes, you might be 0 for 4 in decision-making. And then after we get through and they start making better decisions there, then we start to change. I say, okay, pick one of the other three quadrants. And I said, you know, typically at that point, I would suggest you choose one of the up or down ones. But I let them kind of decide, you know. So then let's say they choose – They choose the higher part of the zone. So now I'm just gonna primarily work up and down, you know, even more middle of the plate, and just say, okay, now you're only looking for something from this point up. And again, we're gonna keep score. So we run through and then eventually we make it more difficult and we we quadrant off a little bit and say, okay, now we're looking for, you know, either up and in, down and in, down and away, down or up and away and pick one of those quadrants and now you've got four of the quadrants that you now are not swinging at. And that doesn't mean in a game that you have to tailor or yeah. pigeon pull yourself to that small of a quadrant. You're just learning to make decisions. You're yeah. and, and Making players. the
0: task more difficult. Yes. You're going to uh,
1: and then after we kind of graduate from that, then obviously it becomes backing up and having to, having to make those decisions at a higher speed. So it starts in just a simpler, slower, uh, short overhand, um, I call it overhand flip because I don't like to do underhand flips. Um, And then I'll go back and I'll throw harder from farther away. Then what we'll do is I'll bring it back up again. We'll go to a shorter flip and I'll show them two different spins. So I'll show them basically like a fastball spin and then I'll show them something that's got more of like side spin. So whether it be just like a slider, a slider kind of spin or whatever. And I'll, I'll throw them a couple of each. Like, hey, look at look at how this ball looks. Because sometimes you don't see the spin, but you can see that the the essentially the color of the ball based off of how the seam is spinning. Yeah, and
0: the shape of the ball will look slightly different. Yeah.
1: Right. So, so I'll do that, and I'll say, okay, pick one, and they'll say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the one that's spinning. So then that round becomes I'm gonna throw some that have fastball spins, some that have either like slider spin or whatever. And they're only they chose to swing at only the ones that were spinning like a slider. Let's say, then those are the ones they swing at. So their decision making then becomes they have to they have to be able to see what the ball looks like, and then make a decision as to which ones they're going to hit. Now those ones are tougher. Um, and honestly, like as these rounds progress, usually I, I force them to step out and take a little bit more time between their next decision. Because usually those are the days that kids leave the cage and they feel like they have a headache because they had to focus so hard on not only, on not only producing the swing and trying to still hit this ball, but making a good decision. And, you know, for a lot of the kids, I feel like they probably haven't focused because they've never been tasked with doing that. They've never been tasked with having to put that kind of focus into decision making. And as we go through it at first, I don't care whether they barrel the ball that much. I don't care if they, as long as they're making accurate decisions, I don't care whether they're barreling the ball as much. Then as those rounds progress, and when I say rounds, we might be like, in what I do, we might be like three lessons down the road. It is now like, hey, now your task is make a good decision and barrel the ball. And your score is now based off of getting two things right. So if you make a good decision and you miss hit it, you're still 0 for 1 in what we're doing. If you make it a good decision and you barrel it, no matter what, I don't care if you barrel it hard on the ground, I don't care if it's to right field, left field, I don't care where it goes. If it's barrel and you made a good decision, then you're one for one in that in that task. So it then becomes this making everything essentially more and more difficult to the point where then again you back up and you go harder again. So now you've made it harder in that situation. Then eventually you make it, okay, we're looking for this spin. Whichever one you choose, let's say we're choosing fastball this time. But now we're doing not just fastball spin, but we're doing fastball spin in a quadrant at this speed with a barrel. Yeah. But that takes a while. To, that takes a while to get to. Like yeah. we're talking, like that's this isn't like we're doing this all in one session or even right. two. This is this is, month, this is months. This is months of time of somebody that already makes good movement decisions of somebody that already is a good enough mover. That we don't have to spend time saying, hey, the reason why you're not being able to barrel the ball is because you just don't move well enough. Like you move well enough, so we don't need to do that as much. Let's do this. So you know, all that takes you're time. making it
0: clear that you need to be a better mover before you can graduate to this point. Man, I don't know. I don't know that that's I, don't I got a know. question for you here. But...
1: I don't know that I don't know that that's the case. I think there's always the chicken or the egg debate on any of this stuff. I think that a lot of times for for Kids, young kids to have success, they need to be a better mover to have success so they can barrel the ball. If I task you with something really difficult and you're already not a good mover, you're not barreling the ball, and you're you're feeling like you're defeated because you can't win, simply because I just I'm following everything off. I just can't square it up. I can't like those guys are easier to lose because they're gonna feel like they're not good, like they're not gonna feel confident. And then, when you're not confident, it's going to be more of a tense situation. And when you get tense, it's going to be harder to make the right decision. So, if you said I had to value one more than the other currently, right now, with the way I think today, I would say good mover first. And then I would say decision making second.
0: Okay. So, I'm going to ask you this question Do we have the lesson model all wrong? And this is a you know, a loaded question, so to say, because it's going to have opinion, because I think of the majority of lessons in any academy across the United States, the first thing that the hitter, regardless of age, is going to work on is mechanics. And they're probably going to do timing work at some point, meaning that at some point, somebody's going to throw an overhand to them at a batting practice distance. Would we be better serviced if all we did with athletes that came in were timing and decision making. Would they become better hitters if we didn't even discuss mechanics? Or is that just too like from one extreme to the other? And so, to add on to the question, yeah, what what is the perfect model? What is the perfect lesson model?
1: I, I think there's a happy medium. Like I said, if a kid comes
0: in and he's I a would good, you're going to say that. Switch if kid,
1: well, but if a kid if a kid comes in and he's a good mover, he's a good mover. That doesn't mean maybe even that his mechanics are great. Right. We're not talking about
0: like yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. I think we ha- we do have to separate those two things. Like if you yep. use a good mover,
1: I think it's easier to go to some decision-making and timing stuff because they'll be able to, at some point, if you just want to call it self organize again, they'll find a way if they're a good enough mover, because that gives them more outs. If you're a good mover, you have more ability to have adjustability because you have more outs because you can work around you can work around things that aren't right because you simply are a better mover. You have better control of your body. So those guys, I think you could absolutely tailor the model more to, Hey, I'm just going to throw you multiple different speeds today or from multiple different distances. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to solve how to get the barrel to the ball, which would be timing. Right. So now like that, that would be your timing model of it. Or you could start to do some decision-making based off of location or stuff like that, because they're, They're better movers. Now you also have kids that come in and they would, I hate, I don't even like the word mechanics at this point anymore, but you could have a guy that you would say has better mechanics, which probably means he's a good mover anyways, but I've had guys that have good mechanics, but they're very they're like, they're, they're what I call picture hitters.
0: Yeah, I, I got you. I, I have the same picture in my mind. Like, they're not very athletic, but they've done this skill so many times that they're r- robotic in what would be considered textbook mechanics. Yes. It's like, if you're,
1: if they're like, I can get- And, that, to every position,
0: again, and yes. not serviceable in a game.
1: Yes. So you, but you get guys that are trying to be perfect, but don't move well to be perfect. And-
0: so they can't solve the complex problems. Yes.
1: And they struggle. They struggle as soon as it gets difficult, they struggle. If, it, if it's T, if it's easy flip, those guys usually handle it pretty well. And as soon as you get to something more difficult, it's immediately like, yep, all these broken edges don't fit actually a fluid action that needs to be done in a short time frame.
0: I, so- I, I picture back in the Bull Sox Academy days, an example of that, there was this one kid that used to come in and he was in the travel program. And you and I were giving lessons all the time. And I don't remember the kid's name, but you'll probably Recall this, and he would be in a cage on the tee for like an hour and a half a day, and hit line drives to the back of the net. And he was always trying to hit it through the iron mic hole of the machine. And he was really good at it, really good, like line drive, line drive. And he'd just do this for an hour and a half, and the guy couldn't hit a lick in a game. They could nothing. He was really good at hitting off the tee on a line drive back, and there was zero transfer to anything that resembled timing, athleticism. Um, problem solving so I think that's kind of what you're getting at there right
1: yeah for sure like like, if you talk to like do you think big league guys value looking good when they swing or do you think they value barreling the baseball
0: that's something I look at from like the scouting side like I want enough looks at a player I mean on video for me that I want to see ugly swings and how are those ugly swings relative to production for them
1: for sure and I think you know again that goes to what are we valuing at a young age with a kid so, yes, I think the first task should be have a kid be athletic, like get them moving, get them jumping, get them turning, get them problem solving with their body. I always imagine like whenever I talk about it, I always imagine like growing up, you know, I grew up in a like you did in a rural community. There was there was woods and, and creeks and rivers and everywhere. And I remember we would have a competition by our school there was a huge dense wooded area and it was almost like a blocked off area like it was like probably like five acres of total whatever but it's just like in this square area around an actual like neighborhood and we would start on one side of the woods and we would race through the woods to see who could get through the other side the quickest now you're running through the woods and we're trying to go fast like there's a tree we're not running on trails there's no trails it is literally just woods and there's there's rocks and there's gullies and there's fallen trees and there's trees that are standing up. And as you're running to go faster, you had to make decisions. Like I had to know if I jump over this fallen tree here, as soon as I come down on the other side, there's a huge rock. So I need to either figure I'm going to land on that rock and go off that, or I've got to jump over this thing, jumping to the side. And as soon as I jump over it, there's a tree there. So I need to immediately be able to go, you know, shuffle to the right, then go back this way. Like, so to win those races, like, you would crash into stuff at first because you were trying to go fast and you couldn't make decisions quick enough as to what the step was, or you would lose the race because you were nervous about making the wrong decision. Yeah. Go yeah. slower. Yeah. And like I remember, I remember doing that vividly. Like we would just like every recess, we would be like, "Let's go out there and do this" because it's right outside of our school. Like, and that was our fun half the time. Because, Wait a minute! You know, in,
0: in grade school recess, they just let you take off and run through the woods. I mean, if not, like, <laughs> it's not like they had like fifty moles. Holy moly! Like you know, how of- dangerous today that would be. There'd be like people lurking in the woods. Like it's we're just in a different day and age. It wasn't like we we're like, hey, we're gonna. Hey, is it okay if we run through the <laughs> let's, woods? Let's skip school. <laughs> the- <laughs> you can run through the woods the fastest. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, in high, in high school, I don't want to cut off your story, but this is funny too. In high school, I lived, I don't know, three blocks from the school. We would skip like the seventh hour, which I think was study hall. And we would go play wiffle ball at my house for seventh hour and then come back to the school for whatever practice we have. And I remember vividly like the driver's ed car <laughs> driving by my house and we have half the baseball team skipping school playing uh, wiffle ball in my backyard. We like waving at them, like It's just things you can do in a small town and nobody cares, right? Yeah. You know, we're back we're out of school right now, but we're going to come back in a little bit. We'll come back. Yeah, don't, promise? Worry.
1: don't worry about it. It's going be fine. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, to, to
1: get back to that, that point, I, I, I think that it definitely matters that where a kid is at from a simply athletic foundation standpoint as to what you can do. But I think as coaches, we definitely need to have more awareness of what tasks we are asking or needing a player to do or wanting a player to do and make it a task versus... I feel like, you know, people still try to make people perfect in mechanics. Like, oh, we got to get these mechanics. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's ever going to be perfect. It's get to the point where you're a good enough mover to now that decisions and timing and all that stuff matters because now that's where the game lies. But you got to be a good enough mover in the first place before, you know, some of that stuff's going to matter. Because if you, again, if you have no bailout move, because the game, like as Andy Haynes would say, the game's messy. Like it is hard, especially the farther you move up. It is, it is a, it is a fight. Every at bat, there's, there's no at bats. There's no pitches off. Like yeah. every dude wants to strike you out. Yeah. Every dude wants not to just strike you out. They want to make you look bad, you know? And like, so it's messy. And if you're a good mover, you have the ability or a more of ability to bail yourself out. than if you're not a good mover,
0: how do you become a good mover again?
1: I mean, you gotta, you gotta get in the weight room. You gotta jump. You gotta spin. You gotta, you gotta wrestle. You gotta. I mean, how many hours as a kid did you spend
0: wrestling with your friends? Just like, just a, a lot. Yeah, I had it. an older brother, so I, I used to get whipped a lot.
1: I got in trouble. We got in trouble so much that we just be banging around the house. My parents would be like, "What are you guys doing?" Sounds oh like yeah,
0: my, my, my parents used to wash. We had a, a dishwasher, just get old school stuff, but they never used it in in the like twenty years that I lived there. It, they hand washed the dishes after every meal, which took 20 minutes or so. My brother and I would eat as fast as we can. So it's like, let's go downstairs and wrestle. Every meal. It was like that.
1: Right, but how, how would, we knew we couldn't
0: get in trouble while they were washing dishes. We had 20 minutes.
1: But whether but whether we knew it or not, how much of better movers did we become? Because wrestling is a very difficult. It's a difficult thing because it requires strength. It requires stability requires decision making it requires so many different things that we weren't doing it because we we're trying to become better athletes we were doing it simply because it was something we did and now it's like kids wrestle. oh you guys can't touch each other don't don't no keep your hands to yourself and i'm like what? like what it's okay man like kids Let's let us scrap
0: a little bit right
1: it's, well and you know hey listen my kid might come home from some other kid's house from wrestling and he might come home with a, a you know beat up face or a Whatever. I'm not going to be like, hey, what were you letting our kids do? I'm going to be like, hey, boy, why, why'd you get beat up? Like, yeah, I
0: agree. That's, that's another That's another parenting thing that my daughter came in last night. Of course, it snowed a bunch in Chicago, and she came in, and she looked like she'd been in a football game. Her hair was all wet. Her face was all red. I said, what have you been doing? It's like, oh, we were just wrestling in the snow, and then she started to say, and this happened to me, right? Like, Because she had a little bit of a shiner underneath her eye. and like, You play hard, you're gonna you're gonna get boo boos. That's just the way it is. You play hard. So I've never been one when my kid gets hurt doing something hard, athletic, or roughhousing to be like, "Oh, you're okay. You should, you're fine," or "You shouldn't be doing that." Like, no, man, that's it's exactly that mindset. Like, well, play hard, you're gonna get some scrapes. It's the way it works.
1: And I tell, I tell my son, I said, you know, if your friends are wanting to wrestle, like if you guys are on the same page, you're like, hey, let's wrestle. Then go do it. Like I told, I tell him, like, listen, like don't don't go like roughhousing with people that don't want to be roughhoused with but like if you if you and your friends are in the same mindset where you look at each other and go let's go like go for it man like go wrestle like go because it's gonna help you become a better mover it's gonna you know it's it's what kids want to explore their machoism a little bit like okay can I can I take this guy down you know like can I I'm gonna Let's get physical, let's move. And like, you know, I feel like that's gotten taken away so much. I feel like I ask a lot of kids like, hey, do you ever wrestle with your friends? And they're all like, no, why, why would I do that? And I'm like, maybe it's weird that we wrestle with our friends. I don't know. But like, in my mind, I'm like, wow, I can't believe
0: nobody does that." My best friends were twins and they used to beat the shit out of each other all the time. So their parents actually got them boxing gloves for Christmas one year. And we are this was probably from 10 to 15. So of course, what are we going to do? We're going to strap those things on the box in the living room. Which we did a We had, a lot. Box,
1: we had <laughs> boxing gloves too. We had boxing gloves. Same thing.
0: Same thing. Uh, broke a few lamps doing that, but it's pricey pay of being a better mover, right, Travis? Hey. So much to be said about playing on the playground. Playground is just a uninhibited area for exploration of movement.
1: Yeah. Sure.
0: I mean, we don't do that much anymore.
1: Everything's structured now, though. You you look back. At, Apparently, you, you didn't
0: look- play on the playground anyway in Wisconsin. They let you run around in the woods. There's probably guys I mean, with stills in the like eighth graders with stills in the back of those woods.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's probably some people living in those woods and stuff.
0: Too. I mean, it's <laughs> uh, I afford,
1: man. If you're fast enough, it ain't gonna matter. I'm gonna get away. What's up?
0: <laughs> I can get through these woods. That's great. I appreciate uh, the time here again, Travis. Good to talk a little baseball with you. I'm gonna head in and. To the facility now and and start throwing some baseballs around and work on decision making a little bit today
1: that sounds like fun and this one goes out to Hardee's of shano where you can still go inside and get a hot ham and cheese
0: yeah um do they still allow smoking in the hardies of shano that's where all the old codgers and robinson used to hang out in the morning drink their coffee and talk about what's wrong with the world
1: Yeah. I mean, Wisconsin is one of those places that even if it's like, you're not supposed to smoke inside, I think, you know, if you smoke inside people just wouldn't care.
0: (laughs) That's what we do. All right. Good episode. That was fun. We'll see you next time. Thanks producer Dan.